think your manager would appreciate it. I don't appreciate your ruse, ma'am. I beg your pardon? Your ruse, your cunning attempt to trick me. Welcome back to Growing Up Punk, the podcast about punk rock and all of its friends. My name is David. Uh, we got another interview lined up for you this episode with uh, a guy by the name of Eric Grubbs. I'm going to tell you about, a bit about him in a minute here, but I did want to uh, get some, you know, housekeeping out of the way. Wherever you're listening to the podcast, make sure you rate it, you review, you subscribe, all of that good stuff. And of course, you can find the show wherever. So if you're listening to it and you're not on your preferred podcast app, why not find your preferred podcast app and find us on it? Simple as that. If you want to find us on social media, we're there as well. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, at Growing Punk Pod. You'll find mine and Aaron's uh, personal Instagram and Twitter's linked there as well. We're on Facebook, and you can find us uh, on our website, growingpunkpod.com. Uh, we've got, you know, the episodes are there as well as different blog posts, reviews, stuff like that. Uh, and we're on YouTube as well. So we're, we're literally everywhere you can find us and uh, make sure you do find us because each kind of place has different stuff going on. You know, if you're listening to the show on YouTube, you're missing out on a lot because you don't get all the fantastic music that's included. But at the same point on our YouTube channel, we've started to do video reviews, just discussing different things that we don't necessarily cover on the show. And as I mentioned, the blog at growingpunkpod.com. So, today's episode, uh, I am interviewing, or I should say I had the chance to interview Eric Grubbs. Now, Eric is an author. He wrote a book called Post, a look at the influence of post-hardcore, 1985 to 2007. Uh, so we talk about the book, we talk about, you know, how he got into punk rock, how he got into post-hardcore, that kind of stuff. Uh, we even cover, you know, why he decided to write the book in the first place, because he's not the first one, you know, kind of to do so. Um, and we get into talking about some of his favorite bands, both now and then, and uh, towards the end of the episode, we also cover uh, the album Can I Say by Dag Nasty. We discuss it for a few minutes, and uh, that's brought in because I said, hey, Pick an album from the book, post, that you wrote, that you want to talk about. And so that's what he came up with, Can I Say, by Dag Nasty. So, without wasting any more of your time, let's get into my interview with Eric Grubbs. Yeah, on the show this week, we've got uh, got a guest. This is kind of funny, because this sort of like came up real quick for me. Uh, your name's... Yeah, I'm, I'm introducing you to yourself, I just realized. Uh, we got Eric Grubbs <laughs> on the show. Now, if you're sitting there going, okay, I've, I've kind of maybe heard the name here or there. It's because I've been Instagramming and tweeting a ton. Uh, because you wrote a book that I could not put down. That book is called Post, a look at the influence of post-hardcore uh, from 1985 to 2007. So um, let's, uh, I guess, Eric, first off, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, this, yeah, is, so, this is a lot of fun. So I guess um, for me, my introduction to you was actually, you showed up on uh, Jimmy Eat Pod 
Um, mm-hmm. And what's I, I can't remember for the life of me which song it was though. But uh, I was like they they mentioned the book obviously. So this this is our crossover. We've both guessed it on Jimmy Eat Pod. So which song was yours? Which one did you get? To talk it about? was it was Splat Out of Luck from the first record. Right. Uh, or if if you want to get like really technical about it, it's the first self titled Jimmy Eat World release. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so so this is this is the record that was put out on Wooden Blue. And, um, yeah, so, um, you know, Justin asked me if I wanted to talk about that and I'm like, well, uh, there's not a lot to talk about that record, (laughs) (laughs) but I'd be, but I'd be happy to talk about, uh, you know, my Jimmy world fandom and I'd love to be back on that, on that podcast because, uh, what, what those guys do is really fun and and what you guys do is really fun because it's like when y'all have done previous episodes about like good riddance, um, and I'm like, okay, this is the kind of show that's like right up my alley because even right though up. I'm kind of known as like, uh, I'm I'm known more for talking ad nauseum about like post hardcore and emo, I wouldn't have gotten into that music if it weren't for pop punk totally. in the nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so. no, it's I, I I'd I'd probably put myself sort of in the same boat. And I was gonna say I uh, the song that I guessed it on was on their was on Jimmy Eat World's other self-titled album which of course is probably better known as bleed american but um right. <laughs> I, I got to do <laughs> if you don't don't which was fun um but yeah no Love that, that that's song a, that's a great show if if you're listening to this show and you haven't listened to jimmy Eat pod uh go do it even if you're not a fan of jimmy Eat world uh david and justin are good guys they're a lot of fun to listen yeah. to so um yeah they talk about a lot of things other than jimmy Eat world yeah 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 exactly right you can't it'd be It'd be very difficult to do a podcast like that and just talk, stay on topic the whole time. <laughs> it would get a little tiring after a while, I think. But um, right. So yeah, that was my introduction to to you and your work with your book post, which we'll, we're going to talk about the book a little bit. Uh, sure. We're also going to we're also going to talk about a record that kind of comes from that too. Um, but yeah. first, I wanted to ask you. Kind of mentioned a little bit there with you know. Um, getting into the post-hardcore world, you know, via pop punk, that sort of thing. So, what was kind of your first exposure uh, that you can remember to to the world of punk rock? Because you know, we we call the yeah. show "Growing Up Punk," which is funny um, in the mm-hmm. sense that you know, we we had one guy at one point send us a message. He's like, "You need to you need to change the name of the podcast to like." Growing up mall punk or something like that, or at least you know like cover real punk bands or, or or legit pop punk albums, and I was like, okay, that's sort of the funny thing I remember from growing up in a punk scene is you know like the gatekeeper sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, yeah, I just I just kind of <laughs> laugh at that, but I want to know how you kind of got got into this world in the first place. Sure. I first heard about punk rock through the fact that I was really invested in skateboarding for a number of years. I mean, I was born in New Orleans and I was born in 79 and my family moved in the summer of 87. And roughly from like 85 until about 89, I was really into skateboarding. And I had a friend uh, in at, at school when we still lived in New Orleans, that he liked to collect Thrasher magazine and skateboarding magazine. And so he would give me these copies and I would see these advertisements for punk, hardcore, metal bands that 
clearly were not on the radio or television. And I remember seeing the uh, one-page ad for suicidal tendencies join the war and being kind of freaked out by that. So I was I was aware that there was this thing called punk rock, and I believe uh, one of the first records that I ever got as a kid was Chipmunk's Punk, which <laughs> amazing. You know, if, if, yeah, if you if you but if you you know the punk historians can be like that's not punk rock. Um, well, it, it, it's essentially like the punk rock aesthetic filtered in through new wave yeah. and all that. And it's, it's I, just like it. It's just I, for kids. Yeah, I may actually have that uh, in the room I'm sitting in right now. I, I I like I found it at a thrift store one day and went. This is amazing. I just can't remember if I still have it. I have a stack of of records. I. I've I've made note of this before. I record literally in a storage room, which you can probably see yeah. on on your video chat. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. so like just up to my right here, there's a stack of records that are just kind of like the ones where I'm like, I just have them because I've come across them or whatever. And when my when when I kind of start running out of room on my shelves, I sort of like reorganize. And anyways, I think it's right. possibly in that stack, which is hilarious <laughs> that you brought it up because I like it's the only yeah. the only time I've seen it or heard it was when I found it at a value village and uh, here you are you're like that's what got me yeah. into punk rock man <laughs> well, well I mean like I'm, I'm very much of my age of the fact that I watched MTV I'm not exaggerating I watched MTV right. every single day almost every single day from the summer of 1987 until the summer of 1998 and if I wasn't not watching MTV I was watching a few other channels but VH1 was another one and so I watched it so much that practically anything that was on MTV I would get into. And that included, uh, you know, starting with alternative rock, grunge, metal. And that easily segued at the time to me to like, well, if you like Nirvana, but say you're not so depressed uh, <laughs> and, and Kurt Cobain kills himself. I mean, uh, in, in early 1994, it's not a surprise that only a few months later, MTV started playing Green Day videos yeah. and Offspring videos. And, and really, that kind of stuff... I mean, I was I was into pop punk, uh, Bad Religion, Stranger Than Fiction was something that I had a, a dubbed cassette copy of. I really got into Face to Face. They're still one of my all time favorite bands. Sure. Um, uh, basically, if if you were on MTV on a regular basis and you were a pop punk band, I, I knew about you. Uh, but I would say that there was a major turning point that happened for me when I was I, I newly graduated high school in 1997. It was the summer of 1997, and my band uh, played this day-long festival at the local Young Life, because we didn't have venues that you could play. It was either garages uh, in, in Kingwood. We're talking suburban Houston here, in Kingwood. And um, so you had just really the option to play at the Young Life or Battle of the Bands at the high school. Yeah. And my band was not good enough to play at Battle of the Bands or uh, the talent show, but we got to play at the Young Life. And so my band was playing really late into the night, but I got there early and I was watching this band that I did not find out who their name was until today because I actually messaged one of the band members like, oh, what crazy. was the name of that band that you guys did? And it was... Uh, Dread Pirate Wesley. Um, 
<laughs> and well, this band was made up of guys that I kind of knew, uh, and they were a little bit older than me. And they played this wild mix of covers, and like they covered Chris Isaac's "Wicked Game," and they did it like as close to the original as possible. Right. But then they decided, they said like, okay, we're about to play an old school pop punk song. This is by a band called Bad Religion. It goes like this. And it was the song Sometimes I Feel Like from No Control. There's Spectre in the corner of an illustrated page. Now lots of units strictly were wrapped from medial gaze. The poverty of his language and the wealth of his emotion. Bringing in this murky musings and unexpected frustration. Making man is we the fabric of his life. Tomorrow might be better, but right now it feels like. And I'm standing there off the side of the stage. And I just go ballistic. Like, I start, like, gyrating and going <laughs> crazy. And, I mean, it's it's not too dissimilar from, like, what you've seen in those hilarious videos of, like, Benny Hinn or yeah. uh, Robert Tilton of people that feel like the Lord, you know, going through them and all that. But this was the real thing. And so I, I decided right then and there I need more pop punk in my life. And that's where I was, like... I don't want just the CDs. I want compilations. I want split seven inches with all these non-LP songs. And we were fortunate in Kingwood to have a locally run uh, record store called Sound Disc. It was run by a couple of deadheads um, who knew like what teenagers wanted to buy. Yeah. And so, um, and so, like they were aware of like pop punk, hardcore, post-hardcore emo as well as, like, Metallica bootlegs. So this place was very much up my alley. And so, like, they ordered from the distributor Choke, and they got, you know, if you wanted something, you just put it down, they ordered it for you, and two weeks later it showed up. So that's that's really how pop punk really hit me at the right time. And um, and it wasn't, and, and I just made this conscious effort to not just, like, listen to the stuff that was on MTV. I was like wanting to track down fearless records, off time records. Um, uh, God, I mean, it's like anything that was in that fat wreck epitaph sort of style. I was all for it. And so eventually that led me to the record that we're going to be talking about on this episode. So, which I I love that you, you mentioned that, that you just like, dove in head first you know you're like mm-hmm. i don't just want like i want it all i want to get the the split seven inches even you know like the stuff that's not on your um mm-hmm. your full-length releases which is 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 pretty awesome because i like i mean i had a similar experience in the sense that i didn't i, I wasn't you know that the first band i heard that got me into punk was actually mxpx and it's like the first yeah. time I, I i heard there actually was a song teenage politics i was yeah. All about I wanted to buy every single MXPX album I could find, but not necessarily like, oh, I didn't th- that world of going there's stuff that's not on these, you know, at the time I think there were four albums that they had out, but you know, it's yeah. like there's stuff outside of that. That world was n- not like nowhere in my you know, like my vocabulary sort of thing at that time. It was just like, oh, Here's their four albums. That's what it is. So that's pretty awesome that just right out of the gate, you're like, no, there's other stuff that I know exists that I got to find. So, um, mm-hmm. 
so so bad religion was kind of then that that gateway drug for you you could say <laughs> yeah yeah and then like many years later i was fortunate to get hooked up with um uh, a free ticket to go see bad religion play at the house of blues here in dallas and um completely unbeknownst to me i mean i kind of lost track of bad religion after the empire strikes first uh, no no disrespect to the band it's just sometimes <laughs> certain records really hit you and other times they sure, uh, and other yeah, records totally. don't but here i am uh watching them play and then in the middle of the set they decide yeah we're going to play almost all of no control and they played sometimes i feel like and just that I, I didn't freak out like I did when I in '97, but it was like, oh my god, I'm seeing them play this. Yeah, and um, you know that's that's a great way of like there's there's something that I love about pop punk that I it's it's kind of hard it's been hard for me to explain to people that don't get pop punk why why I think yeah. it's so special because like <laughs> I've always liked like very very melodic music I, I grew up on like this the soft rock format but then when yeah. you add so you have those melodies but then when you play them at a fast beat it it brings this like really strong charge out of me and I remember being in college and being around kind of the hipster mentality uh, and playing pop punk that I thought was well worth being played on the co college radio station. Um, and these people were really into Radiohead and the Strokes and the Vines, bands that I liked as well, but they just had no desire to be open-minded about pop punk. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it was just like, it's kind of frustrating because like, honestly, like what kind of kind of pushed me away from pop punk uh, as far as like trying to make more friends that were into pop punk, is that it, the conversations weren't about the music. It was all about like what label this band is on, and oh my god, this band toured with this really popular band. Oh well, we can't like this band anymore. I was like, what? What? Why does? What? You know, if the music's good. I mean, for example, um, I remember seeing the Voodoo Glow Skulls play at Fitzgerald's in Houston and the Joy Killer opened and the Joy Killer was fronted by Jack Grisham from TSOL. I happened to meet Jack before and after the show and he was he was totally nice. And the Joy Killer had this like unapologetically like awesome melodic music. You know, they had a piano player um the guy's name I'm, I'm it's escaping me right now. It's Ronnie's Ronnie King, I think, um who's played on a couple of Pennywise records. Um, and, uh, you know, like joy killers playing to a good audience. And then Jack Grisham says, yeah, we just got off tour with the offspring and there's this sea of middle fingers around me. And I'm like, <laughs> what, 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 huh? And so like, what kind of pushed me away from diving even more deeper into pop punk was this kind of like elitism, you know, yeah. it's like if you were a, if you were a screeching weasel fan or a no effects fan. If you were on an email discussion list, you had to act like either Ben Weasel or Fat Mike and just be like pricks to people, in which right. like I'm like, what in the hell? By the way, I, I've been fortunate to interview uh, Fat Mike a couple of times. Couldn't have asked for a nicer interview. Just gonna put That's that right. out there. there. But but <laughs> but anyway, I'm I'm kind of rambling here. But it was it was just kind of like this whole thing about gatekeeping and just being shitty to people that are just like trying to get into. Uh, this music, um, 
it, it was kind of a letdown. And I also yeah. noticed a, a major change that happened when Blink-182 became really popular. I think Blink-182 is a fantastic band, uh, always has been. And so, um, I mean, and as I'm working on this next book, uh, <laughs> Blink-182 is going to be brought up a lot because they influenced a lot of bands. So in right, other words, totally. like, at, yeah, in, in the... At, at, at the end of the day, pop punk is like a very, very important thing for me as far as growing up. You know, or yeah, at totally. least trying to. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, the, the funny thing is, because I can remember growing up in, in the scene and bands like, you know, you, you brought up Face to Face and um, you brought up Good Riddance earlier and stuff like that. For whatever reason, the scene that I grew up in, those bands... Um, and obviously like no effects Pennywise, those bands were all, you know, they got the okay, right? Like they got the thumbs up, but then as soon as you went down the road of something like a Blink-182 who you mentioned, or, um, kind of getting into the earlier 2000s, like Newfound Glory and stuff like that, I can remember like going to shows and there being this sort of, you know, the gatekeeper distinct divide sort of thing where it's like, oh no, those bands aren't punk, but I'm like, what makes these bands that are, you know defining themselves as pop punk any less punk than the bands that are clearly pop punk but they're just on your favorite labels right so it's just funny that yeah um i think and maybe it's just that i've gotten older so i've just kind of uh, gotten away from that but i i think that's kind of gone for the most part like we were talking earlier uh, about mm-hmm. you know some gatekeepers like why don't you change the name to growing up mall punk sort of thing right but yeah um <laughs> but yeah it's, well, it's just funny like that was always a thing in the scene was like whether it was punk or not. Yeah, I, here's just kind of this, uh, what is it, an inconvenient truth about the history of punk rock is that the punk rock bands that are seen as like pioneers, um, two of the biggest ones were honestly put together no differently than how Menudo, uh, BTS, New Edition were created, and I'm talking about the Sex Pistols and the Clash. This isn't some hot sports opinion here. This is this is documented truth. Is yeah. that Malcolm McLaren wanted to cash in on the youth culture in London, and London was a terrible place to be in, mm-hmm. and so he forms this band called the Sex Pistols. He formed the band. And then he has this friend, Bernie Rhodes, and they were like friendly rivals. And he's like, well, I want to form my own band. And that band was The Clash. So whenever I hear, whenever I would see people, you know, be so gatekeeping, it's like, man, I'm all about the real punk rock. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) they were singing about things that were actually going on, but they were put together by a manager. They were also signed to major labels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, there, are, there's just so many discrepancies and double yeah. standards about the history of punk rock that at the end of the day, it's just, do you like the music or not? <laughs> right, exactly. And that's that's really, I think, um, for me, what it just boiled down to. Because I, like, there was, a, there was a period of time where I, you know, quote-unquote, stopped listening to, uh, to pop punk and to punk rock or whatever because I felt like, Part of it was, you mentioned growing up, part of it was like, oh, I felt like I'd grown out of that. But at the same point, there were years down the road where I was like, no, you know what, like, that's still the music that I love. And whether that's, you know, the classic, like, if I talk to my dad, well, the music that he loves is what he listened to when he was a teenager and just out and just out of high school sort of thing, right? Like, that's, yeah. I think that's just the natural way of things for a lot of it, but... 
um, at the same point, it's just realizing that, you know, even after all those those years of going, is this band punk or not? In the end, I'm like, I just don't care. I just like the music. So I, you know, come back to it and you listen to it. And in your case, yeah. you, you write books about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah go ahead. I'll, I'll just I'll, I just want to add this is that um is that it seems like that's on the topic of people's minds when they're trying to figure out who they are. And I think when you you come to a better understanding of who you are as an adult, that kind of stuff just doesn't matter and it's, you just kind of have to sit back and be all like, yeah, um I'm really liking bad cop bad cop, you know, and yeah. I'm going to fest and I don't have to worry about proving myself to anybody. So, uh, yeah, it, well, exactly. I was I was just trying to find because I wanted to to transition into talking about your book and you you kind of alluded to a you know, you're working on another one. Um, yeah. but I I was because of you, I've been reading um, Our Band Could Be Your Life, which yes. you cited as as a major influence. Uh, mm-hmm. On you writing this book, and I was I was just trying to find the specific quote in the introduction because literally, uh, Michael Azarad in the introduction says, um, "Just write your own version of this book," sort of thing, right? Like, yes. I'm not, I might not cover some of the bands you want to talk about, so just go do it. Uh, which is also mm-hmm. obviously very punk rock in its own thing. Like, just go. Yeah. You, you don't got a favorite band? Go be your own favorite band, sort of thing. But um, yeah. So outside of feeling you know, like the influence of our band could be your life. And which I, I should say, um, I heard about this book a while ago and it, mm-hmm. it was just until recently that I finally bought it because I was reading your book. And I think you mentioned it in the book or for sure it's mentioned in one of the little quips or whatever. And yeah. uh, I was at, I was at a local record shop and the guy was like, we were talking about music. He's like, Oh, you got to read this book. Our band could be your life. And so from that point, at that point I was like, well, I'll see if I can find it in the library, which I was never able to. Right. And then, so, um, it just kind of back of the mind sort of thing. And then finally, when I got a hold of your book and was reading it and, uh, it came up, I was like, I got it. So I looked it up and bought it and it's, uh, it's a great read. If you haven't read, it, I'm not done it yet, so I'm saying that ahead of ahead of finishing it. But I'm I'm trusting the rest yeah. of the book. Our band could be your life is written in this way that's like, just like it comes from the perspective of somebody that really lived through right. those like records. Like he remembers seeing them. He remembers like anticipating a record coming in the mail. And yeah. and Michael Michael Azarad also wrote Come As You Are: The Story of Nirvana, which is the only authorized book on Nirvana while Kurt was still alive. And there's there's all kinds of insights on it that um, you know it's it's a very pure kind of look at who Nirvana was. So I mean, as somebody that I hated reading for pleasure. Yeah, uh, in high school, because like the the books that I had to read for for my English class, um, they were just very difficult for me to in, ingest everything that my teachers wanted me to ingest. Like not only know the plot, but also know the the themes, the rising yeah. action, the foreshadowing. I was like, huh. but then I read. Um, I'd actually read that really quickie book that's very forgettable, but it's called. Uh, Never Fade Away. It was written and published less than six weeks after Kurt died. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, like, don't try to find it. It's not a good book. It's really short. <laughs> and it, I yeah. mean, it's it's all completely unauthorized. But that led me to uh, Come As You Are, the story of Nirvana. And right. so, like, um, so I had heard about Our Band Could Be Your Life, and I read it, and, I mean, it was very inspiring to me. And what was kind of the final push to get me to write put uh, final push to write <laughs> post 
Yeah. Uh, get my peas all in order. <laughs> was that um, I I was going through like a real rough patch, like right after college, just like trying to figure out where I'm, what I'm doing with my life. I was working seven days a week. Uh, five days out of the week, I was producing on an afternoon uh, oldies show on an oldies radio station. And on the weekend, I would be working uh, like 16 hours uh, total of doing traffic reports. So music was kind of the only thing that was else going on in my life. Music's been a very, very important thing in my life. And I started hearing about how that there was this book called Nothing Feels Good, Punk Rock Teenagers and Emo by Andy Greenwald. Yes. Um I didn't hear nice things about it. Um, <laughs> and I was like, really? How bad is this? And so what ended up happening is that on March 1st, 2004, I was en route to my leasing office at the apartment complex that I lived in. Um, and there were roofers that had been working on all the buildings on my complex. And they were just like throwing shingles off and, you know, like, you know, because most people were at work or at school or something. So they were just throwing shing piles of shingles everywhere uh, in the courtyard. And so right as I think I'm in the clear, uh, a big pile of shingles hits my head like that. And <laughs> um, and so like it would I would I would say it was like a hard slap. It wasn't you know, it just was bleeding a little bit, but it like dinged me and kind of dazed me. And the thing was, is that. I dropped off my rent check and I kind of lost track of time and I ended up going to work like a little bit earlier than I normally do. And I remember distinctly driving down the Dallas North Tollway southbound and exiting off at Wycliffe in what was then a toll plaza. It's now gone, but the toll plaza. And I, as I was driving down, I was just starting to think about how like, man, when are things going to get better about the whole like world of post-hardcore emo? You know, apparently this book, this nothing feels good book is really, really bad. And so um, I, I decide, I'd say to myself, well, what if I tried to write a book about it in the vein of our band could be your life? And I was like, that's not a bad idea. And so then when I got to work and realized I, had, I was 30 minutes early, I messaged uh, one of my best friends in the world still, and we play in a band. We played in a band in college. We now play in another band now um, named Nick Wright. And I messaged him. And I was like, Nick, I've got this crazy idea. What do you think of this? And he says, you're not crazy, and I'll help you put it out. Now, he ended mm. up not not putting it out. And I had to self-publish it. But he was the guy that in that right moment where you know, like, this is a really good idea that you should do. But when you have somebody that you trust to encourage you to do it, you go even further. And that right. day, I, I, I reached out to members of Jawbox, whom I had already corresponded with because I was just like a, a really big fan of. And I also reached out to Adam Faller from Jawbreaker. And they all said yes. And that began a period of just interviewing people uh, either via email, phone, or in person. And that was a good three years. Um, mm. And when unfortunately I could not... Uh, find a publisher that wanted to publish the book that I wanted out there kind of a long story but uh, I ended up self-publishing it and um, the fact that I am still talking about it 11 years later uh, is is a uh, honestly it's a, a, a big uh, it's a nice reassurance that all along that I was like I, I stuck to my guns about what I believed in um, and that people still want to talk about it 
I still get royalty statements. They're like laughably paltry compared to like, you know, people that live off their royalties. But the fact that people still care, that means everything to me. And due to the fact that all the bands that I feature in post, um, they were broken up at the time that when the book came out in 2008, 2009, I'm, 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 it's been so long ago. Right. But yeah. I just, I wanted to do an afterword. And no publisher wanted to publish a ten-year anniversary of Post, so I decided, well, why not write? Why don't I write a second book? I had a really good conversation with my wife the day after we got married in 2017, and she's like, "Well, what's the next big creative project that you want to do?" We talked about doing a, a documentary about post-hardcore emo, um, but I decided to write an, a new book because uh, I think a, a five-page afterward just wouldn't do justice to all the bands that um, reunited all the bands that went mainstream and the emo revival. And so I've been working on that book since November, this new book, which I'm planning on calling Forever Got Shorter. I've been working on that since November of 2017. <laughs> and, and it just, but the, the thing is, is that uh, the longer that I work on it, um, the the more like I, I interview people that I didn't think I would get to interview. So uh, it's going to be another self-publishing affair unless somebody really wants to help me out um, <laughs> and not steal all my all my cut of it. But um, but uh, yeah, it's it's honestly been a very rewarding experience to you know, do, do podcasts, interact with people, people that have questions about it. And I realize that I'm just blabbering here and you probably want to have some questions. So I'll shut up. <laughs> no, it's funny. I was trying, I was like, I had a few things that, that came up while you're talking. One of which was, I was glad you brought up Jawbreaker because you're wearing a pretty great shirt right now. I'm actually wearing a Java Breaker shirt. I'm, yeah, it, it says Java Breaker. If you go to Donut Friend in Los Angeles, they have uh, yeah. a donut flavor called Java Breaker. And yeah. so, so anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, I was gonna say where did where did it come from? Because I the Java Breaker was somewhere in my brain. I was like, I know I've seen this somewhere, and I think that's uh, people had posted about it on Instagram or whatever. But um, yeah, it's it's a great yeah, donut shop uh, owned by Mark Trembino, who worked with Jimmy yeah. World and Blink One Eight Two. Yeah, that's so great. So, were yeah. you always interested in writing, though, or did that was it just kind of like you're like this no. is a void I'm going to fill? No, I hated writing. <laughs> I hated Perfect. Writing that's a great place in, to start. <laughs> um, but but what had happened was when I went to college and I was a radio TV film major. Um, writing scripts was a lot of fun to do. I was really into Kevin Smith, uh, mm. still am. And Kevin Smith, his his wisdom actually brought me and my wife together. Uh, long, fun story about that, but staying on track here. Um, <laughs> was that writing screenplays was fun. And then when in one of my classes, I decided to write about how at the time... Uh, Family Guy was unfairly slagged off as a Simpsons clone. Right. I decided to write a, a paper about why Family Guy is not a Simpsons clone. And I had to really work and refine it. One of my roommates helped me write something that I could be proud of. And I realized then, if I'm writing about something that I genuinely care about, it's gonna, it, it, it easily flows out. And yeah. I've been told by people that have like read my like reviews or articles is that it's a 
It's apparently really obvious when I'm super into something and when I'm not into something. Hmm. And so when it comes to the books that I've written, um, you know, there's Post and then there's another book, uh, When We Were the Kids, and then this next book, is that the enthusiasm, I hope, translates onto the page. And and it's 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 a big honor for me when people tell me it's like hey i decided to check out all these bands that you wrote about because of your enthusiasm because that's what happened to me um you know i was i didn't know much about the replacements before let it be um i didn't really know much about beat happening uh but or husker du's back catalog it's like but because of the way that michael azarad wrote about them just right. made me like really interested in getting to know who these bands are. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's one of my favorite things about reading. Um, because I find like whether it's fiction or even just a lot of times like biographies, autobiographies, whatever, you know, the case may be, I don't, sometimes I can really get into it, but for the most part, I'm like, ah, it's really got to catch me from the get go. But books like post and our band could be your life. Um, half of the fun is going back and kind of discovering or even rediscovering in some instances, like bands that are being discussed. The first time I can remember kind of doing that with a book was actually, uh, this is a call, which is the Dave Grohl biography. Right. And, uh, yeah. And so like, especially in, you know, the, the section of that book where they're talking about Dave's upbringing in the, in the Washington DC scene. Right. And so, yeah. And so like that, I mean, it's it's incredible to me how many different books that actually gets covered in, which I mean says a lot, mm-hmm. obviously, about what was happening there. Because not only do you cover it, yeah. it's also covered in our band could be your life. Uh, if yep. I recall, it's it's co- it's covered. Uh, yeah, for sure, it's covered in nothing feels good, and just like all these different books that mention. And I was glad you brought up nothing feels good because um, my initial reaction to when I kind of read the description of what your book was, I was like, Oh, is it just going to be like reading nothing feels good? You know, kind of 2.0 because like that (laughs) book had some nuggets, right? Like it had some interesting parts where I was kind of like, okay, but it also felt very, I don't know how to explain, especially maybe like the dashboard confessional sort of the Chris Caraba stuff felt very over the top and um, almost cartoonish in a sense in how it was like describing yeah. all this stuff. And I was, and then the, the whole back end of the book about makeout club and stuff like that. I was like, why is yeah. this a thing that I'm reading about? Um, but thank but, yeah. but your book is definitely not nothing feels good 2.0. And I think a lot of that thank is, you. as you mentioned, kind of anchored in just sort of how you approached telling those stories and, and, and writing right. this book. So I guess that leads me to a question in, you know, how much of this book were you kind of like legitimately sort of there for and going along with, you know, like as it was unfolding? Because obviously you cover, what, 1985 to 2007. That's 22 years. You obviously, yes. you know, I'm going to assume you weren't, um, you know, there in the flesh for all of that. <laughs> that is correct. Um, but but my thing about, I mean, I've received some blowback of like, you really weren't there, Eric. This is the worst book ever. Actual comment <laughs> on on yeah. uh, that I once saw. But but when it comes right down to it, is that all writers have to do research yeah. in order for, um, I mean, in order to tell the best kind of story, and that means you got to interview a lot of people. And so I've never forgot what it was like to like be a fan of like when the promise ring was really active, when Sunday Day Real Estate was active, 
And um, I, I just tried to put that in there, but not start using first person. And right. so I talked to as many people as I possibly could. And just every kind of like little minutia I wanted to find out. Because, you know, there's that, uh, there's that infamous rant that Ian MacKay goes off of at an Embrace show, which I believe was actually turned out to be the last Embrace show, where he's like, Emo Core is the stupidest fucking yeah. name I've ever heard. You know, it's on YouTube. You know, I, as somebody that read Thrasher, I was all like, okay, well, this makes sense that, you know, being, in, being into skateboarding, skateboarding culture, Thrasher, it's kind of like... This this kind of stuff has always like been around, but in order for me to get things straight, I need to talk to as many people as possible, and uh, it was it was very important for me to interview at least one band member per band that gets a chapter. I was very fortunate to not only interview Ian MacKay but also Brian Baker uh, for the Discord chapter, and um, and. Some some chapters I got to interview every band member. Uh, Jawbox, Hot Water Music are the are the two. With Jimmy Eat World at the time, they were still riding off the success of Bleed American. But uh, Zach Lind actually was very very kind to me to take thirty minutes out of his pre show time uh, to on the Futures tour to answer questions that I had for him and. Um, I recently interviewed Zach for this new book, and he didn't remember interviewing with me, but you know, when you do thousands of interviews, how, yeah. how the fuck are you going to remember all this? But yeah. I told him, I'm like, you were really nice to me, and you didn't have to be, and, but that's, that's something that I've never forgotten. And, um, and so it's like, because of the fact that I was, like, I was into the things that uh, – were a common thing to be brought up about like, well, we were skating and I met this guy and we started playing a band. I'm like, I can relate to this. Mm -hmm. And um, to just kind of briefly bring it back to nothing feels good, punk rock teenagers and emo. This is my polite way of saying something that if you get me really drunk, I'll just like rip into it. But I'll, <laughs> I'll, this is my polite criticism of that book is that it's uh, very superficial and um, it's clearly written by a guy that he says at the forefront, I'm an outsider to this. And he spends like, what, six weeks uh, getting yeah. into emo culture. And there are a lot of uh, typos in it. There are a lot of errors. And there's a lot of context that is, is, is really missing from that book. And so when I see so many people like cite it as a, like, the definitive works, I'm like, um, I think there are some other books that are a little bit more informed and and my book was just an attempt to be more informed i have nothing against andy greenwald i don't know him i've never talked to yeah. him it's it's just when you write something so superficial um it kind of comes across it's like the way that he presented post-hardcore emo is like it just kind of popped out of the sky one day i'm like no it didn't just <laughs> pop out of the skies one day yeah. and I, I also say this is that um Chris Caraba is a wonderful dude, and um, oh, yeah. I tried. I tried to read "Nothing Feels Good," uh, and this is very emo-ish of me. But uh, I got halfway through it, and I threw the book across the room, and I went back <laughs> into. I went back to my computer and started working on it. Oh, funny! Um, but but I, I decided to read the try to read "Nothing Feels Good" after I made the decision that okay, this is this book that yeah. I'm going to write. But um, you know, it's it's like. You know, Andy is a published author, 
and that wrote for Spin, and um, I think he currently writes for The Ringer. So he has legitimacy, right? But that book was written in such this like superficial kind of way that I'm like, well, hey, I have no cred to my name, but at least I got to try because I see all these people complain online. And it's like, well, why aren't you guys trying to do something about this? There are more people that are very, very more informed than me. Why aren't they writing books? Uh, I don't want to write it. I'm not. I don't want to do that. So it's just kind of like, well, <laughs> I at least want to try. And yeah. that's what I stress to people even now. It's like, if you don't like what you see, try to do something about it instead of just like posting on Reddit about how this book sucks. <laughs> yeah, which is which is interesting because that that's kind of a point that um, I had written down when we're going to talk about Dagnasty in a little bit, but um, yeah. was just kind of in... I was listening to the One Life, One Chance podcast with Toby Morse. And Toby. Who was he interviewing? He was interviewing. Actually, I think it was. Oh, no. It was uh, the interview with. Oh, why can't I remember his name now? He was actually. He took over for vocals in Dag Nasty. Um, this, this was semi recent that this interview happened. I had it written down. Anyways, I can't remember. Well, his name. there was but, the original singer, Sean Brown, and then there was Dave Smalley. Then there was Peter Cortner. Peter. And then yeah. they reunited with Dave Smalley. And yeah. it, it was with Peter Cortner? Okay. Yeah, and so it just anyways, it this it, this has nothing to do with Peter, but um, Toby had made a comment where he said, you know, like I I enjoyed punk like that that kind of like the first you know sort of wave of punk rock or whatever. He's like, but I really had no idea what you know anarchy in the UK meant and all that kind of stuff. He's like, so when I heard right. like hardcore punk for the first time, he said, not only like were these you know were these people like angry about something. He's like he's like that's what I took from. You know, kind of like that first wave of punk is like they were angry about something, but didn't necessarily want to step up and do anything about it, right? It was like, right. ah, fuck the world, sort of thing, right? Whereas, yeah, right, he found like with that '80s hardcore scene, like these these kids that were writing songs were like, yeah, I might be angry about something, but I also want to do something about it. Um, so it's Absolutely. just kind of an interesting tie where you say like, if people are complain, just get up and if you complain about something, get up and do something about it, sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um, H2O, H2O was a huge influence on me. Um, oh, man. And, so good. And, and Toby Morse, solid dude. Yeah, for solid, sure. For solid sure. dude. He, it's funny because, like, I mean, you can, in a lot of ways, like Dave Grohl, going back to, we were talking about Dave yeah. earlier, I mean, he gets all the, yeah. like, obviously, like, oh, he just seems like the nicest dude in the rock and roll world, right? Like, that's just a huge band playing shows all over the world while not playing shows all over the world right now. You know mm-hmm. the way things are, but right. you know it just seems like this legit dude. And I'm like on a on a different level, I get that very same vibe with like Toby Morris of, of like the hardcore punk world. I'm like that dude just seems like you know you could hang out with him for hours on end, and he's just like super cool, super chill the whole time. Uh, yeah. Also, he has a ton of great guests on his podcast, which I've kind of slept mm-hmm. on. Like I when he first started it, I was like, oh, this is awesome because I I want to say he was starting it around the time that we were doing an episode on H2O back mm-hmm. uh, in the the older life of the podcast before we lost a bunch of episodes. But anyway, uh, okay. and I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And then I just never listened to it. And then it was just recently I was going back through and I was like, dude, has had a ton of great guests that I just want to sit and listen to. And he just talks to him real easy. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I had this one experience of uh, a friend of mine from high school died of a drug overdose 
and um, when I was in college, and I and the first show that I saw after he died was H two O, and uh, playing at the Galaxy Club, and I walked up to him and I was like, "Dude, this show was like really, really good." A friend of mine just died of a drug overdose, and he and like he he has no idea who I am, but the fact that I just opened up to him, he just said, "Dude, I'm so sorry for your loss, and I'm I'm really glad that you know our performance, you know, could." could yeah. uplift you that's that's toby morse to me you know yeah, like yeah you you know like you you don't you, you can just blow people off and be like what the fuck do i care who are you yeah. but yeah but th- that but that sincerity and the sincerity that he sang about you know it, it really stems from like mid 80s discord you know it's mm-hmm. it's like there are all those songs like family tree you know, so I was I was thinking about the good old times on all the people that helped me survive, and who the, when who the hell knows where I'd be if it weren't for a family tree. You know, yeah, yeah. It's like, and I I haven't listened to H two O in a long time, but it's like that's the kind of stuff that is like very firmly implanted in my brain um, yeah. about like it's it's not just being all like you know fuck Reagan. It's yeah. like let's be kind to each other and let's be genuine and be yeah. good people to each other. Yeah, and I mean like so he he spoke about kind of like finding that in in hardcore and it's just it's incredible that you know he's just because you i don't even know how to if we're going to go down this rabbit trail or not but just the (laughs) fact that he you know just still lives that to this day he's like 50 now i think he just turned 50 this year and so the fact that yeah that's still very much kind of dictating who he is um that's pretty incredible uh to discover that as a teenager and it legit like, I mean, you can say, like, oh, punk rock changed your life or whatever. And to a ex- certain extent, I'm like, yeah, I could say that about myself, but not right. to that level. Like, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, and and punk just keeps, like, changing its definition. Um, I think Joe Escalante put it best in The Other F Word, that documentary mm-hmm. that has, yeah. like, Jimmy Lindbergh in it and Art Alexakis from Everclear. And it's just like, what exactly is punk rock? What is it to be punk rock? Does it mean that you, you're living on the streets and you have like three illegitimate children and you're addicted to heroin? Is that the kind of life that you're supposed to have? Or are you supposed to, you know, be, be res- a, 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 you know, an ethical, smart person? And I mean, punk rock is, is just very much about like, what what I've always kind of taken it to be is all like be who you want to be and be the best version of yourself and you know and to a certain degree don't completely abandon your morals to to only make a lot of money you know don't screw yeah. people over don't you know do terrible things to people just because it's like you because of greed I mean it's just like so it's that it's it's a much deeper sort of thing about whether or not you sound like um, the Dam's first record, or you sound like um, Gigi Allen, or you live like Gigi Allen. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and I, I find that for people to adjust as an adult, um, Milo Ackerman put it best in uh, Punk Planet many many years ago was that uh, you can't fight adulthood. And right. I'm telling you, that's that's been a struggle in my life, but I actually really embrace and enjoy adulthood now much more at 41 than, say, when I was really struggling with it in my 20s. Yeah, going back to 
you know, you made the comment about, you know, what is punk rock? Is it living on the street, you know, being addicted to heroin, that sort of thing? Uh, the decline yeah. of Western civilization would have you believe that, yes, that is punk rock. Um, <laughs> because yeah. of, I think it was a, maybe a tweet that you sent out. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, think I tweeted you were watching... out yesterday. Yeah, I, I tweeted yeah. out about how, like, um, how, like, DVDs are, are essentially, it looks like DVDs are going to stop being produced. And I bought the Blu-ray box set of the three Decline and Western Civilization yeah. movies a few years ago. And there was this one night, I was just like recently, where I was just thinking about something to watch. And um, they happen to have, like, I, I've always been meaning to watch the second one about the hair metal years. Yeah. And they have it on Amazon Prime. And I, I just didn't want to get up from the couch. <laughs> I mean, we're talking like... 10 feet away from me to go find the box set and put it into our DVD player. But yeah. I decided to not do that and I watched the metal years. But it reminds me of, but getting back on track, is that, um, you know, the first one is very much about like these runaway kids where like it was the California dream of like you live in California, you're supposed to have this great life. And all these kids come from broken homes that they're just trying to find some sort of community. And it it's really kind of sad, but I will say this. The Black Flag footage with Ron Reyes on vocals, incredible. Yeah. Absolutely uh, incredible. Yeah. So your, your tweet about that led me. I was like, oh, that's on Amazon Prime? So I opened it up, and I started watching part one. I was like, oh, yeah, I saw this not that long ago. I remember watching it. And, like, the Black Flag footage uh, is definitely what stood out for me from that so then i was like looking i was like oh yeah there's part two and three and i saw part two is like the metal years or whatever i was like ah maybe not tonight and then yeah. uh, part three being you know in the 90s or whatever i'm like okay i want to check this out because this would have been like way when it was shot because i think was it released in 98 um but anyway it was it was around yeah. the time that i would have first been like really getting in into punk and uh yeah i just i was like okay so what are what are we going to cover here and i just watched it and i was like man like i don't know if i knew anybody that was like this now obviously like from one scene to the next things changed you know and, and growing yes. up in the calgary scene in alberta canada is going to be very different than you know I, I think that's los angeles maybe that that yes three is. Yeah, yeah um I, th I think so um, I, I yeah. have to say this. I've had uh, part three on DVD all this time, but I've never watched it. I think it actually was unreleased until like the DVD box set came out, right. which was just just crazy. But but yeah, yeah I mean, I, I hear you because it's like as I was getting into punk and hardcore, hearing about all these things happening in California and in New York. And for me, growing up in the South, first New Orleans and then Houston, um, all this stuff about people talking about like, yeah, going to CBGBs and we're going to get you. You want to get into a fight in the pit? What you going to do about it, motherfucker? Yeah. Where it's yeah. just all like, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Huh? <laughs> what? So, I mean, yeah. In all fairness to The Decline Part 3, it is specifically focused on like gutter punk sort of thing, right? Like ah, homeless teenagers. Okay. So I'm like. Yeah, I didn't. I I can't recall knowing any of those people. I am interested to look up though. It, it says it was, um, it was it was shot in 1998, which it's crazy to look back on because I'm like, oh yeah, that should feel somewhat, you know, like, I mean, that's what 20 plus years ago now. But yeah, uh, as like just watching it, it's it's incredible how how much older it looks 
than you know mm-hmm. 1998 but obviously it also yeah. wasn't you know like a major motion picture or something like that right i'm curious to know what happened to some of those people because they are all yeah. oh in five years i'll be dead I'm like i wonder if that actually yeah. happened or not but yeah um yeah yeah and because I mean, of you though tweeting about amazon prime and the decline being on there i went and i was like holy crap there's a ton of good um punk documentaries on here so earlier today i was watching salad days in hopes that there would be um you know a bit of information on dag nasty before we talked about them but they're, they're only one, a little one thing snippet. one thing real quick david um yeah. my my pro tools crapped out i'm back recording now um but um it it actually stopped recording while you were talking so um <laughs> so we, this should be very easy to edit but i'm, oh, I'm yeah. recording now again so anyway okay i'm gonna leave it all in <laughs> yeah 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 okay cool i was just just rambling on anyway, but maybe this will be a good, uh, oh, I did want to ask, um, two more yeah. things about your book about, yeah. po- well, one's about post and then the other's about the upcoming post. Um, yeah. so you had mentioned, we were kind of messaging back and forth, uh, because obviously you'd sent the book to, uh, you know, to try and hopefully find some people to publish it, distribute it for you. And you kind of mentioned a funny little tidbit about, like, did you send a sample chapter, the braid chapter, and you kind of got, uh, some some interesting feedback on yeah yeah so i mean i had originally thought like okay i'm gonna put this out on my friend's label that didn't work out then i got in touch um with an agent and this guy is a very wonderful man who gets it he's a musician himself i have nothing bad to say about this agent and he pitched it out to um a few publishers and one of them was St. Martin's Griffin. And I was not interested in working with St. Martin's Griffin because of the fact that they had published Nothing Feels Good, Punk Rock, Teenagers, and Emo. Right. And um, the editor there was like, I want to read some more. And so read the Braid chapter and said the Braid chapter was boring. And, <laughs> um, and what St. Martin's Griffin wanted was just essentially a book that kind of grouped all the bands together from the scenes that they came from. and But as far as like the behind-the-scenes, nitty-gritty stuff, that was apparently boring. So I decided to walk away from a potential deal because I was like, yeah. I, had, I had pitched, I'd been, at that point, I had interviewed and, and gained the trust of people that this was the book that was going to come out. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to go back on my word. Um, and so I passed on the opportunity and that book eventually became wish you were here that Leslie Simon wrote. I'm not claiming that, you know, like I think St. Martin's Griffin just wanted this kind of book out there. Right. And, and they got Leslie Simon to write it. I mean, Leslie Simon had co-authored everybody hurts with Trevor Kelly. And that was, that was a pretty successful book. Um, which is, uh, as compared Nothing Feels Good is the one book that I'm like, mm, I have a hard time finding nice things to say. But Everybody Hurts <laughs> um, is is really funny because like Leslie and Trevor were very involved in their respective scenes. And it's very much right. obvious in what they wrote about, including the inside jokes in that book. But um, yeah, so the Braid chapter, which I thought was a very important turning point uh, chapter this editor thought it was boring. So I'm like, well, if you think that's boring, you're going to be bored by the whole book. So, <laughs> which is funny that they put out a book with a chapter all about makeout club. Uh, because I, I struggled. I was like, 
in in nothing feels good i'm like okay i gotta i gotta finish the book because here i am i've, I've paid for it i'm reading it and that last chapter i was just like i i got through it but anyway yeah um <laughs> i did want to ask about so what did you say the the title of the the book you're working on now is um it's the the I can't find a better title, let's just put it that way. And I've already right. approved it by Bob Nana from Braid. Um, yeah. It's like, I want to call it Forever Got Shorter, another look at the influence of post-hardcore right? Uh, from 2009 to maybe 2020. I don't know. It's, okay. it's Depends how long finished. it takes you to write it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's very much like kind of like a, a, like a sort of like wrap-up of... Yeah. Where things where things okay, I've got this starting point and where's kind of like my stopping point as far as as for things. So Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, that was I mean, one of the things reading posts, like it's been out for a few years now and obviously, you know, you wrote twelve it over years. A of years. <laughs> yeah. Um it was as you mentioned earlier, a number of the bands that you covered in here were broken up at the time, but then yeah. I think maybe the only ones that weren't were probably Hot Water Music, The Get Up Kids, and Jimmy Eat World, maybe? Were At The well, Drive-In still together then? Uh, at The Drive-In anyway. was broke. At the drive -in was broken up, and yeah. it didn't seem like they would ever reunite, given all the shit talking that Omar Rodriguez, <laughs> then known as Omar Rodriguez, now Omar Rodriguez Lopez, talked shit yeah. about At The Drive-In. So when At The Drive-In reunites, and then they reunite again, this time without Jim Ward, I'm like, and they just stand there like statues and act like they have yeah. no passion into playing it. Uh, I can't help but wonder what's really going on here. Um, but yeah. Uh, so, yeah, at, at the time, like Hot Water Music broke up, mm. like right as I was finishing the book. <laughs> and so I was like, right. no, no. And then, and then like <laughs> the Get Up Kids were broken up and it didn't seem like that band would ever reunite. Given the right. fact of like how Jim Suptic, Ryan Pope, and Robbie Pope all had very frustrated feelings about Matt Pryor, happy to say yeah. that they they've reunited. Um, oh. Braid had done their first reunion tour, um, and but that was kind of seen as like a one-off. And then when they reunited again a few years later, and then they did a No Coast, then it's kind of like, oh man, there's there's a lot more story. And also, I have to say this, is that technically Fugazi uh, never broke up. Oh, um, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like, they they adamantly said, like, we, we, we've not broken up. Apparently, over the years, behind closed doors, the four of them have practiced together. But as far as them getting together and you know playing shows, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Yeah. But um, yeah. But yeah. So technically, every band that I spotlighted has reunited in some form or fashion. <laughs> Jawbreaker, yeah, Jawbreaker and... was a. Um, in some ways, I didn't think it would ever happen. But then again, when I saw uh, Blake Schwarzenbach uh, perform a solo show here in Dallas, and he mentioned that he had hung out with Chris Bauermeister for the first time in many years, I was like, I think Jawbreaker is going to get back together. So, yeah, yeah. Um, um, it, it is funny though because like some of those bands getting back together have released some like killer albums, like Braid. You yeah. mentioned No Coast, which I yeah. mean, I hadn't. So my story with Braid is actually I was first a fan of hey mercedes you know because they kind of obviously like the vagrant years when vagrant was kind of blowing up with the whole 
you know, like emo pop punk sound. And Hey Mercedes is there. Their album Loses Control was we did um, we did an episode back when you know COVID was first happening, and we we actually mm-hmm. did multiple episodes called the Quarantine Scene, where we got different artists to like recommend some, not necessarily their favorite records, but you know, like underrated records sort of thing. And so, like right. the one that I brought up for our episode, one of them was hey mercedes loses control because every time i go back to it i'm just infatuated it what it boils down to is bob nana's lyricism really i think and his melodies and whatever that kind of comes comes to the forefront but then so to go and listen to no coast um and hear kind of like braid but also very polished braid i was like oh this is this is so good for me this is good for my soul and then obviously you mentioned get up kids getting back together and their Mm -hmm. album problems was one of my favorite albums from was that just last year it came out yeah Um, came out yeah uh, like polyvinyl record caught me out of left field it was so good Mm -hmm. oh yeah so so the idea with the new book um Mm -hmm. are you so so are you going to kind of like here's where we are, where we, you know, picking up where you left off sort of thing. And then kind of touching on you. I know you mentioned some of like the emo revival bands and stuff like that. Do you want to like, do, do you want to tease any of those bands? Are you, are you sure. just kind of like, no, nah, we're going to keep it a surprise. I mean, well, it's, it's not going to be like how post was where one chapter is devoted to one band. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I decided that got to talk about what I, well, it just kind of keeps developing but it's like give sort of an update about everything that happened since Post came out, and that is talk about all the band reunions and how how those went well. Um, I had a lot of mix misgivings about mainstream emo when it was happening because yeah. it just kind of seemed like people were way more interested in mainstream emo and they didn't give a shit about kind of like where it came from. Sure. And yeah, yeah. and well, how it's all panned out is that because of the emo revival and also because of, you know, passionate fans, uh, is that the mainstream and the underground DIY version, they they very much they complement each other. Um, where like I, I've interviewed people that started emo revival bands that love Blink one eighty two or Paramore or My Chemical Romance, to where I'm like, you know what, I need to reevaluate stuff about like My Chemical Romance and, yeah. and, and stuff like that. Um, and, I mean, I didn't outright hate that band. It's just I was, like, very disappointed that even now, um, when I bring up emo to somebody that, say, uh, is, is just kind of a casual listener, uh, I've been laughed at by people uh, that's, you know, it's like, hey, I wrote a book about where emo came from. I mean, I once told that to a room full of journalism students, and they all laughed at me. So, <laughs> but, uh, anyway, um, so yeah, it, it, it's really what I'm trying to do is like talk about the reunions, really address and not sound like some bitter old man about, um, the mainstream stuff, but also talk about the emo revival and just how it's impacted people all over the world. Um, right. so anyway, I'm babbling well, bef- too much. <laughs> That's okay. Before before we get into um, you know, and going back in time, a bit of an older record. Do you have uh, a favorite uh, or or a couple of favorites? You know, bands that would be dubbed as emo that are or post hardcore, whatever that are that are kind of in the middle of their heyday now. Tiny moving parts. Hell yes.
guys are the real deal. Um, Man, uh, I was gonna say every every I'll put I'll put a record on it. Doesn't matter which record it is, really, from them because every one is good. Um, and I'll I, I I tweeted one a while back. I was like, I think Tiny Moving Parts is my favorite band that I always forget about. And <laughs> you know, part of that is because. As we mentioned, as I sort of mentioned earlier, I'm more inclined a lot of times to kind of like go back, right? And like listen to those favorite records from, you know, back whenever. But I also like to try to, you know, like be aware and into if, you know, like new stuff that's coming out. And so Tiny Moving Parts is just always like this band that sneaks up on me to the point where I'm, yeah, 100% those guys are, are, if, there's a, there's a real good chance that if someone were to ask me you know, it, that very same question, Tiny Moving Parts would definitely be at the at the top of the list just for current bands in general, not even like genre-defined sort of thing. Yeah, as far as other bands, there are many, many other bands. Unfortunately, a lot of these bands are short-lived. Um, a great example would be Modern Baseball. Um, yeah. Those guys, they were poised to be huge, but I think it's very very good of them and you know there's so much merit in taking care of your mental health and so right. like Bren Jake you know they just decided you know what we can't we can't do this band anymore and to just kind of explain like how big this band got was that when they were touring off of Holy Ghost or they were about to tour on Holy Ghost they were going to be playing the place in Dallas where Slayer plays (laughs) they were that big and i'm like yeah and only two years prior they were playing um it was for the longest time it was known as the gypsy tea room then it was known as the profit bar nothing changed about the venue just the name but like i remember seeing modern baseball when they were doing you're gonna miss it all it was on that that uh tour cycle that place was packed and uh so modern baseball does stuff and there's there's Bands that are going on now that are doing great stuff. Uh, I would highly recommend uh, the band Dogleg. Uh, there are a lot of uh, they put out. Uh, I think they have a record out on Triple Crown Records. Lots of great yeah. emo bands out there, um, and it's just like Tiny Moving Parts. Though is a band that is consistently excellent, and yeah. I remember seeing that meeting them at uh, a house venue in Denton. And they were just so happy-go-lucky, you know, happy to be on tour and everything. Just wonderful dudes. And they're still that way. And now it's like Dylan is like this guitar hero to all these like younger (laughs) people that want to learn like, you know, doing the alternate tunings and and putting a capo on it and doing all this tapping stuff, you know, which was just Dylan being inspired by Fall of Troy. And so you have all these younger people wanting to do the same thing. So... uh, you know, there's My Chemical Romance can headline arenas. That's great, and it makes a lot of people happy, including me. Um, but there's also like Tiny Moving Parts can play uh, smaller venues around here, and and people are genuinely happy. Um, so it's it's like, yeah, Tiny Moving Parts is is definitely going to be a major player uh, because of just just their story alone. Yeah, is is kind of crazy. So. Going back to the Guitar Hero comment, I'll say I'm 35 years old, and and Dylan got me wanting to learn how to, 
you know, like two hand tap and all this, like stuff I never did, you know, and I was yeah. like, I'm, I'm going to learn tiny moving part songs. And then I do it and I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't yeah, handle yeah. this anymore. Yeah. Um, when, I'm, I'm like too he's old doing, for this. He, he's, he's doing those playthroughs on YouTube yeah. and he's like, yeah. you know, Ernie Ball and Fender are sponsoring him. I'm like, good on him, you know? And yeah, you know, he's, he's still a, he just the amount of positivity that radiates from that guy right. is yeah. incredible. <laughs> but he's, um, he's having a good time all the time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's at least that's what it looks like. I guess I can't make that assumption, but he definitely like you can't help but you know smile when you see that guy play music and those playthroughs. I'm like, I would like just you know even an instrumental tiny moving parts record because. They're just like song wise, they're just so good. And then, you know, you, I've, I found that with some bands where I'm like, okay, musically, this is really good. And then the vocals come in, I'm kind of like, okay, I can't quite get on board. Whereas, like with Tiny Moving Parts, it's like both sides of that coin are, are right there. But yeah, um, totally. Let's, uh, before we go too yeah. terribly long, I said, you got to <laughs> pick one record that kind of like, and I, I kind of, now I don't know if this, um, sort of hindered your choice at all or, or or what have you but i said it's got to be from something that was at least briefly covered in your book post yeah uh yeah. i said that i that i wanted to talk about and so the sure. album that you picked was dag nasty can i say something earlier uh yeah. and you included a copy <laughs> of travis barker's autobiography yes and which i was like great because as soon as i hear the name can i say obviously all i can picture is travis barker and his tattoo that yes. says can i say mm. does that actually does that have anything to do with his record i believe it does yeah i'm okay i don't recall though that travis talks very much about dad right. nasty it's just like the Can I Say is from the Can I Say record. And and also there was a, a, a CD liner notes for a soundtrack for a Taylor Steele movie called The Show. Right. And it's because of that soundtrack is that's how I got into Dag Nasty is that No Use for a Name covers I've Heard. And right. um, I, I'd never heard a Dag Nasty song before, but I, I heard it. And I was like, man, this song is super aggressive, and I really like this. And then when I find out that it's a Dag Nasty song, and I heard that the band Horace Pinker had covered one to two, um, I was like, well, I should check out Can I Say. And, you know, Can I Say uh, is is one of those records that I keep coming back to because of the fact that there's maturity to it, but still, like, angry, youthful <laughs> kind of thing. Right. And... Um, and I mean, like, 
going to go back with the hot sports opinion here, but I can't remember the last time I wanted to listen to a Minor Threat song, but I can rem- <laughs> but I can remember when I wanted to listen to a Dag Nasty song. Um, right. And it, there, there's just a lot of things about it. And uh, like the, the two songs that I really wanted to highlight with you were Values Here and I've Heard. I heard this! I heard that! What do I believe? It's on again! It's on again! And once you've lost it, it's always gone! I know I shouldn't accept a person's word of truth without at least giving you the benefit of the doubt. I get so mixed up by the things you say and the way you act! I get so mixed up by the Both of those songs, uh, to me, like really show that like Dave Smalley is an incredible singer, um, right. and that Brian Baker, uh, you know, that guy's a guitar prodigy. He jammed with Santana when he was really young, and yeah. you know, I kind of I kind of forget. Oh yeah, he played bass in Minor Threat and later guitar, and then back on bass. Um, and oh yeah, and he was heavily influenced by ACDC, and he really wanted this kick-ass sort of guitar sort of playing in the the next main band he did after Minor Threat broke up and he played in the Meat Men and Samhain. And yeah. uh and so yeah, it's like and Colin Sears is drumming just fantastic. And it, I highly, highly recommend checking out Can I Say if if you've never really if if you like Rights of Spring, if you like Embrace, and I'm talking the D C band, not the British band. Um, but like, can I say solid 10 minute, uh, 10, 10 song, 25 minute record, um, to listen to. So, well, and it's, uh, it's interesting that you brought up, I mean, it's not interesting. It's, it's not unexpected that you brought up minor threat in a sense, because obviously coming from, uh, the same scene and whatnot, and obviously Ian McKay, um, producing this and Brian Baker being in the band and, Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the first note, because like Dag Nasty is a band that I never had listened to prior. I'd heard the name, and obviously in reading the different books, they'd come up. And for whatever reason, as far as I can remember, I, I recognize the artwork, so maybe I did listen at some point. But this was the first time I really kind of dug in. And my my initial kind of uh, reaction to it was, oh, it reminds me of Minor Threat, except it's way more melodic. Mm-hmm. Um Obviously, with Dave Smalley's vocals, he's, he's like Ian McKay in Minor Threat just does a lot more yelling and, yes. you know, like talking almost versus Dave Smalley here where there's there's legit parts where he's actually singing melodies. Mm-hmm. And it, it really, you know, kind of takes it um, to another level. In fact, the song that I brought up, like that I wanted to mention was the song Circles. <laughs> Part of it was, I don't know if it's Smalley singing or not, but on the bridge, 
the background vocals that are going on there actually like remind me of the Smiths, and it's just yeah. sort of like this, you know, kind of a bit, you know, it's hardcore punk, and you know, it's it's emotional hardcore, it's post whatever you want to call it, and it's also super melodic at the same time. Yeah. So I thoroughly kind of enjoyed it, and you know, you'd mentioned like the the whole. There's a maturity to it, but also like this kind of just like young energy that's kind of going on there. Um, yeah. And yeah, I don't know, man. Like, so how did you, so you, you first kind of heard about it because of the cover. Yeah. Um, was it sort of like immediately, like where, did, where does it kind of rank, I guess, f- for you as far, you don't have to put a number on this, but is it is it on its own up there pretty high for kind of like your favorite records type thing? Or is it more that I told you you had to pick something from this book? <laughs> I mean, as far as like in this kind of niche, this is one of my favorite records. But as far as for me, like the pantheon of my all-time favorite records, uh, that goes, that belongs to albums uh, that are very not post-hardcore <laughs> But other than Jimmy, Jimmy World's Clarity, Face to Faces, uh, Don't Turn Away, The Beach Boys, Pet Sounds, uh, the first, uh, it's it's such a toss-up for me, but uh, the first two Ben Folds 5 records, um, Sanity Real Estate, Diary, um, you know, but like when it, but it's like Can I Say is, is, a, is a great record to always revisit, and, um, and I can, I can, I would put it like this. It's like there are a lot of sentiments in that record that you don't have to be 15 years old to be like, yeah, that's me. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember interviewing Brian Baker for the book and I told him about how like, yeah, you know, cause like Brian wrote the majority of the lyrics on that record about how like you can, I can relate to this as at the time I was in my twenties and how it's like some of the, a lot of these things that he's, that, First, Sean Brown, and then later Dave uh, Smalley saying, um, are are things that don't necessarily go away as you get into adulthood. And Brian's like, dude, I'm still struggling with a lot of the stuff I, I wrote the lyrics for on Can I Say? And I was like, okay, all right, yeah. you know. And and so like that that to me is like a great example of how like music can travel with you through your life. Um, Trevor Keith is one of my all time favorite like singers and lyricists. And yeah. what he sings about, uh, you can be 15 years old, 25, 35, and now at 41, you can get something out of it instead yeah. of like, oh, yeah, I was like really upset about like animal testing when I was 17 years old. So I was right. all about earth crisis then. But now it's like, yeah. uh, you know, you, you can't fight every war. So so yeah. in other words, like. That's my that's my point. It's like, uh, can I say it's like there are so many sentiments on it that you can keep coming back to, like just the line, "I've heard this, I've heard that." What do I believe? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny, like the the Trevor Keith thing, because um, we we did an episode on face to face a while back, and we plan on actually doing kind of like in the future a deeper dive because we had sort of a bit of a background if, if you haven't heard it we when we started we kind of did like episodes based solely focused solely on a band and we try to cover like their entire discography and we were right. very quickly found out man that's an undertaking for some bands yeah and so we then decided to like well let's just break it down and do two records per show type thing and so face to face we plan on doing a deeper dive but one of the things about trevor keith and face to face, and uh, like same way for me is like face to face is easily one of my favorite, just like straight up punk bands. 
Um, and a lot of it is Trevor's lyrics in the fact that I was trying to figure it out because I can still connect to them, like you said, like as much today as I did when I was 17 years old. And I think a lot of that, though, is that his lyrics, his lyrics are often, they're kind of vague, but not vague, right? Like, yeah. like you said, like, you know, an Earth Crisis song or when you talked about like the animal rights sort of thing, like my, my initial my initial thought went to good riddance and how, you know, they've definitely got some songs that are very much, you know, um, against, you know, animal cruelty and all that kind of stuff. And like, so those are very, like they're, they're very obvious what those are about. Whereas with face to face, a lot of it is just like that, you know, it can be introspective. It can also be, you know, just kind of a a broad look at how things are going. You can apply it to so many things. Right. And that can, I mean, there might be some instances where lyric, like for lyricists, I might be like, that's a weakness of theirs. But mm-hmm. with Trevor Keith, I think just the way he does it is just like, no, he he, he he kind of like paints a broad picture, but also does it in a way that is still very, it doesn't feel like he's singing about nothing, if that makes right. sense, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah, I mean, I can, I can see that kind of comparison with this record here in just like, um, and I can also see, you know, when I, when I think of going back to Toby Morris and uh, H2O, I can also like, you know, I was thinking about how, um, his lyrics, he's another lyricist where he can get very specific with some things, but at the same point, he's always writing things that, you know, whether I was 17 years old or 35 years old, I can still kind of make that that same connection because he's just singing about everyday things. And I saw a lot of that on this record here. Yeah. Um, when all, th- uh, all throughout my 20s, I kept reminding myself of Toby, the Toby Morris line of, I've come too far now to ever close my eyes. Because, mm. like... I was really trying to navigate where the hell am I going to go with my life? And I was just like, well, just keep going down the path that makes you happy. And um, so, yeah, and, and I think a lot of that is, stems from his influence of Washington, D.C., post-hardcore. Totally. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, man, this was this was a ton of fun. Um, yeah, man. I also like the, uh, the opportunity to you know, kind of discover some like, so this is an, another band that I, I was familiar with the name, but as I mentioned, I never really dug into. So it's always fun to kind of hear from other people, like albums that, you know, kind of ha- held something for them that maybe I had never really listened to. So I can, yeah. I can definitely say that Dag Nasty is a, I actually went on Discord's website earlier today. I was like, can I get this on vinyl? Is it still available on vinyl? But they're out of print right now. So I was like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it'll but, be back in print soon, you know, because yeah, like they, they do a, they do a pretty good job of keeping everything in print in some form yeah. or fashion. There you go. But man, yeah, um, I guess. Do you want to do you want to share like your social media stuff if people want to follow you and you, and you know kind of keep up to date with how the book's coming along? Yeah, um, you know you can you can find me on Facebook uh, just as long as you know you're cool and you don't want to send me hate mail or anything you know you can you can easily find me uh but as far as like twitter and instagram i am eric underscore grubbs on twitter and on instagram i'm eric j grubbs the j is in james hey same middle name here we go <laughs> we're officially i've I've been bugging you because you were posting about the kevin smith stuff and all i was like man we're gonna we're gonna have to start separate podcasts here, and then you also we also share the same middle name. So there we go. It's right, it's right, happening. right. Yeah. So you you can you can find me on there. Um, you know, it's it's just like I like to interact with people that you know, people like yourself uh, that yeah. that it's like, hey, we want to have discussions about it, and 
I'm always happy to answer any question that people have. Yeah. It, it's it's just like we all got to like look out for each other because like you know when when it comes to like people that say grew up on punk, it's like you you kind of know when you meet people. Like when you right. posted about slick shoes, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because um, it's like you know, it it it's. It sounds like kind of snobby, but I think of it like this. It's like if if you meet people that say we're like big fans of Slick Shoes, and even if they haven't listened to Slick Shoes in like 20 years, chances are those people have like fond memories, and I'd like to you know talk to people about that kind of stuff. So, Yeah, man. That, was, that, was, that wouldn't surprise me when you commented about, you know, I would posted about Slick Shoes, and then so you were like, deep diving back into them i was like all right here we go you just never know sometimes because like so for like aaron my my co-host and myself we both kind of grew up with a lot of obviously i mentioned mxpx earlier but kind of like getting those foot in the door with you know like punk skate punk pop punk sort of stuff kind of through like the tooth and nail christian side of things yeah me too sometimes it's surprising how how far they reach sometimes you know like some of those bands that you know i think like i know who they are but do, do other people like so that's pretty awesome craig's brother Craig's brother. Craig's brother. Yeah. There you go, man. Yeah, Homecoming. That was my jam, you know? Yeah, that is a good record. Good record. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think think that's going to do it for for this episode. Cool. uh, that you weren't paying any attention to what I was saying. Uh, I hope it feels good. You hope what feels good? I hope it feels so good to be right. There's nothing more exhilarating than pointing out the shortcomings of others, is there? (sighs) Well, this is the last time I rent here. You'll be missed. Screw you! Hey, you're not allowed to rent here anymore! Yeah!